Welcome to all of you. I am given the somewhat dubious honor of doing the very first 11th hour of the whole uh, festival, which is a little nerve-wracking, but I'm excited to talk to you all today. Um, I'm going to be talking about three different kinds of experiential writing today. Um, and I have those on your handout, so as I talk, I'll be sort of slowly going through the handout. If you didn't get a handout, um, Matt has them. I'm going to kind of go over it in the course of my talk, um, so you could just pick that up from him probably on your way out uh, if, if you didn't get one when you came in. Um, so I'm going to talk about these three different types of experiential writing, but I am going to admit straight off that these categories are a little bit arbitrary, and they're my own categories that I've created. So. I, you know, don't go out into the world and, and expect someone else to be talking in these same terms. Um, I think this term itself has sort of foggy boundaries, and you could make the argument that any type of writing at all is experiential writing, because after all, we're always interacting with the world in some way. Um, but for the purposes of this talk today, the way that I'm going to define it is um, by experiential writing, I mean any type of writing that requires you to really actively interact with the world in some way. Um, instead of just with your own self or your own memory or your imagination. Um, because I think a lot of our writing, particularly if you're a fiction writer, a lot of your writing comes from memory and imagination. Um, <coughs> nonfiction writers might think that, oh, of course I'm doing experiential writing, it's nonfiction. But I teach nonfiction all year long and I see a lot of students working on memoir who are working solely from their own memories. They never go out and talk to other people about the experience. They never go back to visit the place where such and such event happened. Um, and so in that way, they're not doing experiential writing. They're just working within their own heads. Um, <clears throat> there's other types of nonfiction writing, say if you're doing a more journalistic writing, where you will necessarily be involved in the world. But not everybody is. Um, and with fiction writers and poets, I think that divide is even greater, that it's easy to convince ourselves, um, and I'm primarily a fiction writer, it's easy to convince ourselves that everything has to come from pure inspiration, right? You're sitting there and you're waiting for the muse to inspire you as to what should go down on this page, and it's just going to, if you are good enough and diligent enough, it's going to hit you like a lightning bolt someday, right? Um, but I think that's a fallacy. I don't think that actually happens very often. Um, and I think that getting out and doing things in the world to influence your writing can actually help that to happen more often. If you can take that active engagement with the world, I think it's extremely useful for both fiction and poetry. Um, so there's no reason that anyone is exempt from this conversation, no matter what type of writing you do. <clears throat> Now, when I was a very young woman, one of the first jobs that I had was I was an intern at The Atlantic. Um, and I had various sort of boring tasks that included um, fact-checking articles. So once I had to call every motel on Route 66 and ask them if they had a no-vacancy sign outside. Um, and in Spanish, and my Spanish was not that good. So I had a lot of things like that. But one of the perks of the job was that um, Mike Curtis, who was the long time, for many, many decades, fiction editor of The Atlantic, would um, read the intern's work and he would give you some feedback on it. So I took to him, I was what, 20 or 21? I talked to him a story that I thought was just fabulous. You know, I had polished it and honed it and worked on it and I thought it was great. And I gave it to him, and then I went to his office a few days later to hear his pronouncement on my wonderful work. And um, Mike was a man of few words, is a man of few words, and he said, uh, he said, there's some nice writing in here, and I think you'll be an excellent writer once you grow up a little bit and learn what the world is really about. <laughs> And of course, at the time, I was, you know, crushed and offended. And I went back to all the other interns and said, oh, can you believe he said this? I need to grow up and learn what the world is really about. Um, but he was, of course, like, he was exactly right, you know. Um, I knew things about language and how to use language, but I didn't have a lot of experience in the world. And he was probably talking primarily about emotional experience, but I also just didn't have a lot of 
active experience in the world. I had gone to high school, I had gone to college, and now I was working in a nice air-conditioned office in Boston. And really, what had I learned from those things? You know, I had a few nice adventures here and there, but not that much. Um, and then similarly, when I was a professor here, when I was a, sorry, a teaching assistant here at the University of Iowa, I had a student in one of my introductory fiction classes who um, had finished the class and he said to me, I really want to apply to the writer's workshop. Um, and I said, okay, you, you want to do that right now, right after your undergrad? He said, yes, will you write me a letter of recommendation? And I said, well, why do you want to go to school here? And he said, well, one, it's a great program. I said, sure, I'm not going to argue with that. He said, two, uh, I'm from Iowa and I really want to stay here. And I said, if you really want to be a writer, you need to get the heck out of Iowa. At least for a little while, right? Because unless you're W.P. Kinsella, you cannot make a living writing about Iowa. It's not, it's, it's a hard game, right? I, some people can manage it, but not many. So, but I'm not just talking about this idea of maturity of age. That is part of it, right? That as we grow older, we accumulate these experiences. They influence our writing, even if we don't initially recognize the ways in which they're influencing our writing. But I'm also talking about the fact that even as adults, even when we have the leeway to go out and have any kind of experience we want, even after we've lived through all the heartbreaks and the difficult times that shape us emotionally, as adults, it's very easy to go through a year or five years or ten years of our lives without really accumulating very much new experience. To get up every day and go to your work or to call your friends for lunch or to sit down and watch something on TV and not do anything that really challenges your view of the world. Um, and again, I do think there are people who can be successful writers in that way. And in fact, I think there's a subset of people who require that kind of routine to have the sort of mental peace of mind they need to work. But I think that for a lot of us, living in that way is actually like death to your writing. You, you don't have any new influences coming in to inspire you to think in new ways, to see the world in new ways, um, and it causes things to stagnate. So um, the ideas that I'm going to give you today and the kinds of things I'm going to talk about today are a way to combat that sort of stagnation. And I'm not saying that all your writing should be this type of writing. I'm not saying don't sit down at home and let your imagination form your poetry or your novel or your memoir. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But I think this forms a good sort of balance to that type of writing that having both of these components in your life um, can be a really important part of the writing life. Um, and there are other reasons too, not just for that reason, but there's another really important reason um, that I think we need to do experiential writing, and that is to create um, the emotional support that you need for writing. So um, people often like to say writing is a lonely business. Um, and that's true in some way. I don't know anyone who actually does their writing while they're out you know, at the coffee shop chatting with people. But on the other hand, I do think we sometimes make it a more lonely business than it needs to be. Um, and I know for me, I consider myself lucky, and it's the same for the other festival staff, that we all have a lot of friends who are writers. But for all of you here, I know that some people, that's exactly why they come here every summer, because they want to talk to other writers, right? And you don't have that community at home. How many people here feel like you know, let's say, more than five other writers at home that you can talk to? Okay, so I'm going to say about half, maybe about 30%. Um, the other great thing about experiential writing, it gets you out and interacting with people, and maybe they're not interested in writing, but they're interested in whatever your current project is, and it gives you that emotional support, that emotional feedback that really um, helps your writing flourish. You know, So if you're writing about, if you decide to write a piece about um, bird watching, and you go out with a group of bird watchers, they might not know the first thing about writing, but they're really enthusiastic about bird watching, right? And, and that energy and that excitement, I think, does help to fuel your writing in a different way. All right, so the first type of writing that I want to talk about um, is what I call the do-something writing, where you actually physically leave your home and go to do something, 
whatever that might be. Um, the magazine that I work at, Creative Nonfiction, um, I'm going to borrow their term for this, that they call it stunt writing. Um, because often what people do with this type of writing is they pick some particular unusual activity that they would like to engage in, and they um, engage in it for, let's say, a year. So, for example, um, there's a woman called Rachel Held Evans who wrote this book that's coming out in October. It's called A Year of Biblical Womanhood. And she decided she was going to live for a year according to all the rules in the Bible. Um, so she, you know, she was not allowed to cut her hair. She had to make her own clothes. There was something about... Um, praise your husband at the gates of the city. And so she literally went and stood at the entrance to her city with a big sign that said, Mark is great, or something like that. Um, she, really, she took it very literally, right? Um, so, and she, but she did it, uh, you know, because she, she was an evangelical Christian, and she said, she, I always heard this term being thrown around, biblical womanhood, biblical womanhood, and I decided to find out, well, what does that really mean, biblical womanhood? Um, so she spent, I think, a year on that, and she, um, she wrote a blog about it, okay? And blogs, this kind of stuff is like the meat and potatoes of blogs, right? There are, goodness knows how many blogs out there devoted to people who have decided to do some crazy thing and write about it. Um, so that's one example um, from a sort of more modern era. But this idea is not a new idea. If you think back to some of the early American writers, um, someone like Nellie Bly, right, who is a journalist famous for her book, 10 Days in the Madhouse. She was a young female journalist. She wanted to make her name. And she took this assignment to pretend to be insane and to be committed to a woman's insane asylum in the late 1800s. Um, and she spent 10 days there, and then finally the editors of her paper had to come and convince the asylum officials that she was not, in fact, insane and that she should be released. But while she was there, um, she underwent all kinds of horrible treatment, um, you know, rancid food, cold water baths, being locked, you know, like chained to the wall and things like this. Um, and it was a really uh, formative piece in terms of... Uh, addressing the problems in mental health care. Um, it also really made her name as a journalist. And she went on to do other kind of stunty things. She, um, she recreated Phineas Fogg's uh, trip around the world in 80 days, or she tried to anyway. Um, so she was famous for doing these sort of assignments. Um, and then uh, another example you could think of that we'll sort of connect back to at the end of the essay is um, Henry David Thoreau doing Walden, right? Living out in the woods, no contact with other people, in this cabin that he built with his own hands, um, and recording it, right? Writing about what was this experience like. We don't think of this him as a blogger, but I feel like today he would have been a blogger, right? Um, with a wireless internet connection out there somehow, um, talking about the cardinal that he saw in his windowsill today. So that's one type of um, experiential writing, the stunt writing. Um, if you want to try a project like this, the best advice I can give you is do not take on anything that you don't have a larger reason for wanting to do. Um, because no matter how great this project is, no matter how many of your friends say, oh my gosh, that's amazing, they're so going to publish that book, um, you just never know, right? Publishing is a hard market, and you shouldn't, I don't think, engage in something like this purely for the purpose of, oh, I want to have a really popular blog, I want to publish a book about this. Because you just don't know. Um, if you think about the examples I gave, um, these people all had some deeper reason for wanting to do this sort of project. So um, Rachel Held Evans wanted to come to a deeper understanding of her own spirituality. Nellie Bly wanted to increase awareness of these problems in mental health, and she wanted to sort of get her position at the paper, which she did. Um, and, you know, a, a Thoreau obviously got more out of his time in the woods than just a book, right? So you want to think about that. What would be meaningful to me so that after a year or something of doing this, I've gained something from it,
and I can walk away from it happy, even if nothing else ever comes of it, right? Even if there's no financial gain for me or if there's no publication for me, okay? Um, if you're really determined that you want to publish, then when you pick your project, you really want to think about how distinctive is it, how unusual is it? Um, because hiking the Appalachian Trail is amazing, and it's still amazing, and good books will still be written about it from this point on, I'm sure. But no publisher gets the book proposal that says, I'm going to write about hiking the Appalachian Trail, and says, yes, this is the book I've been waiting for. You know, there's a few of those books out there already, and it's, it's not an attention grabber, right? So that is something to consider if you do want to think in terms of publishing. Think about what's um, unique. Again, I'm not saying that's a bad book to write. I love to hike. I write about hiking. Um, but you don't get that automatic excited response that you'd get with something more unusual like the Biblical Womanhood Project. Um, <coughs> and I don't want to imply, again, I don't want to imply that this is limited to nonfiction. Um, so, for example, the book I'm reading right now is called Ultima Thule. It's a winner of um, the Yale Series of Younger Poets Prize for the year 2000, which if you're not a poet, it's a pretty big deal prize. Um, and it's... Uh, <coughs> It's written by a, a guy who was a cave, a cave guide at Mammoth Cave National Park in Kentucky, which is actually where I've just come from. So that's where I got the book. Um, he crawled around in these caves for months and months, and then he came out and wrote a book of poems about it. Um, but this is where the experience part comes in. He has these details that you would never know by watching a National Geographic special about Mammoth Cave by reading someone else's book about Mammoth Cave. He talks about the particular scent of the cave. He talks about the way the air feels on your arm hairs as it's going past you as you crawl down these little <laughs> passages. Yeah, if you're claustrophobic, it's not the place for you. Um, but, um, you know, it's, uh, it's that level of detail that only comes from personal experience that really makes these poems so rich and so enjoyable. Um, I am going to detour slightly for a second um, and deliver a little public service announcement, which I'd like to call, you don't have to write a book or a blog. Because maybe I'm saying all of this and you're thinking, oh yeah, that sounds really great, but I don't have a year to um, stop cutting my hair and dressing in homemade clothes and crawling through caves and doing all of this other crazy stuff. My life is not like that and I can't do this. Um, you don't have to do that, right? Uh, stunt writing, do something writing, doesn't have to be about this project that subsumes your whole life and changes everything about who you are. You can do something for a day or a week or a month or even for a few hours, a really intensive experience, and write about that and still get a great piece of writing. Um, I find that a lot of people feel like any time they have an interesting experience, it's something that needs to be turned into a huge project, right? It needs to be turn, turned into a book. It needs to be turned into a blog. In my opinion, this is the downfall of blogs, is that people um, decide to write a whole blog about something that would have made a really great essay, you know? But they decided to write about it for two years, and it became completely boring. Um, so, and, and I think the same can be true for books. People love to say to you, oh my gosh, you should write a book about that. But stay away from those people, they're evil. I mean, the question you want to ask yourself is, do I want to give minimum five years of my life to this subject? And if the answer is no, then you don't want to write a book about it. Because let's say you're a pretty fast writer, your book is done in two years, you're going to spend another year, even if you instantly get an agent and a publisher, which is unlikely, you're going to spend another year waiting for it to be published, you're going to spend another two years promoting that book. So that's five years, and that's a short time scale there. If you don't care about it that much, you don't need to write a book about it. There are, all over the country, fantastic literary magazines being published by universities, by independent presses. Um, and they are always looking for great essays, short stories, what have you. Um, there's nothing, you're not copping out by just writing something shorter. One of my favorite essays ever, um, 
<clears throat> is uh, how many people have read Joanne Beard at some point? Okay. Go look this one up when you get home. Joanne Beard has an essay called The Fourth State of Matter. It's about the school shooting that happened right here at the University of Iowa, about half a block away. Um, it is, uh, she was working at the University of Iowa at that time. She was close friends with some of the people who were killed in the shooting. It is one of the best essays I've ever read. But I've often thought when I read it, some people would have tried to get a book out of this. Um, being so close to such a, um, what, I mean, this is, this is in um, 91, I think. It's pre-Columbine. It's pre-every other school shooting you can probably think of. Um, it was huge national news. She didn't try to make a book out of it. She wrote this amazing, gorgeous essay um, that was published in The New Yorker and kind of helped to launch her career, and you can still read it online from The New Yorker's website. Um, but it, I, I think she... I think she could have, but I don't think it could have been as good. I don't. Um, it's such a, it's so emotionally raw. A lot of it is actually about her own life, and the shooting part of it doesn't come until later. Um, and so it sort of blindsides you. Um, but no, I don't, I think it would have had to be so, that emotion would have been watered down, right, over the course of a long book, whereas um, in this short form, she's able to stay so true to her experience and to how it actually unfolded for her, um, which is not that you look ahead months, months and months and um, put together all the pieces of what's going to happen, but just that you go into work one day and you leave and this horrible tragedy happens and you had no idea. And that's sort of how it hits you in the short form. I'm a big fan of the short form. I'm a little prejudiced. What's up? Joe Ann beard, like a beard on your face. Yeah. Um, so that's that's my other thing. Don't feel like this is something you can't do because you don't want to devote your whole life to this project. So um, the sheet that I gave you, the top section, the do something section. Um, I laid out uh, just eight ideas. Obviously, there are many, many ideas out there of what you can do. Um, but these are just some quick things that you might consider. Um, remember in any of these things that you want to take detailed notes, but with the do something, sometimes it's better to take those notes immediately after the activity because you don't want to be, um, number one, try an unusual sport. You don't want to be trying to play bike polo and sort of like writing down notes at the same time. That's, that's going to go badly for you. Um, and I won't read all of these, but I will say if you look through them, um, I tried to put the emphasis on doing something that's outside your comfort zone, because I think that's what creates the most interesting writing. So number two, it says spend a day or a weekend volunteering. Well, I think a lot of us volunteer you know, here and there. Some of us volunteer regularly. Some of us do something a couple of times a year. But for this, if you want to do this, I'm going to say pick something outside your comfort zone. So if you're really good with tools, don't go work for Habitat for Humanity because you're not really going to learn that much doing that, right? Um, <clears throat> but if you suddenly have to go, you know, bake pies for charity and you don't know how to bake, you might learn something from that. If you have to go volunteer in the part of town that you're afraid to go to, you're going to learn something from that. Um, if you go to a different part of the country and volunteer, you're going to learn something from that. So. All of these, it's in there sort of between the lines. I'm asking you to do something that, that challenges you in some way that you would not usually do. Um, number seven, join a group for enthusiasts of something you have always considered uncool or boring. Um, I've seen some great documentaries in the last few years about people with kind of geeky pastimes. Um, you know, war reenactors and... Um, I don't know. Whenever I end up hanging out with these people, I find out that they're the most interesting and best people. Um, they just have a different way of viewing the world. And if you can kind of immerse yourself in that atmosphere for a while, you get so, you just learn so many interesting things. So I say give it a try. If you don't like it, you know, you can quit a little ways down the line. But you might have some really great experience. Um, <clears throat> 
Number six, make something that requires skills you've never developed before. The last one says a kayak, and you might think I'm joking, but there is a class here in Iowa at Kirkwood Community College, which is make your own kayak. So it can be done. Um, okay, so I will, I will leave off from that. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, the second type of experiential writing that I want to talk about is learn something. Um, so before I'm saying I want in the do something, I want you to be an active participant in whatever it is you're writing about. If you're writing about marathons, I want you to run the marathon. If you're writing about, um, you know, whatever. If you're writing about doing championship horse jumping, I want you to be on that horse, okay? Learn something is a little bit different. Um, it's where you're still interacting with the world around you, but you're maybe not doing the activity yourself. Maybe it's flying a jet plane, which I am not expecting anyone, right, to go out and learn how to do just for the sake of writing about it. Um, so how does this work? How many people, um, either yourself or with your children, watched Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood at some point in your life? Oh, excellent. Okay. Um, so if you remember, Mr. Rogers had... a uh, a picture frame on his wall that he called Picture Picture. And it was a picture frame, but it had a TV screen inside of it, and he would magically tap it, and it would show you this video. And often, the videos were these videos of things being manufactured. Um, so he would take you to the crayon factory, or there's one where he shows you how cellos are made. Um, and this was always my favorite part of the show. I loved this part. Even more than the land of make-believe, and it didn't come on very often. But it made me really excited um, because I loved that inside look into how things are created that you would not usually get, right? That you, um, that was like a mystery that was being revealed to you. Um, and so the learn something writing can be something like that. Um, I'm going to embarrass Stephen for a minute over here. Stephen's first novel, right, is, um, has a lot to do with the heart transplant procedure. And he spent a lot of time at U of I Hospital learning about this, right? Um, he doesn't know how to do a heart transplant, I don't imagine, but he could tell you a lot about how it's done, right? Um, from really closely observing the, the process that goes on around it. Um, so that's what I mean by learn something, is get out there in the world and see how things are done. Um, and the experience part of this has to do with interacting with other people. Right. When you do this kind of learning, you are usually uh, at the mercy of other people to help you out. You can't just bust into the emergency room and say, hey, I'm going to watch this heart transplant now. Thanks. And, you know, whip out your notepad. You have to, um, you have, to have helpers. Okay? So um, that's, that's what I'm talking about with the learn something. So, for example, I had a student in one of my nonfiction classes who wanted to, she's from California, she wanted to write about recycling. Um, so she did one piece where she went to one of the recycling centers where people drop off their recyclables. Um, she talked to some of the people waiting in line. I get apparently in California people wait in line to drop off recyclables. I did not know this. We don't do this in Pennsylvania. Um, she talked to some of the people waiting in line, and she talked to some of the people working in the recycling center. Um, so she did that piece. Then she did another piece where she went to the actual factory where they separate um, your bagged garbage and recycle it. And she went through that whole thing with them. And she went around to did like several pieces like this, looking at all parts of the process. She didn't have any, she's a freelance journalist, but she didn't have any super impressive credentials. She didn't work for the New York Times or something that people were just automatically going to open doors to her and say, oh, of course, you know, come in and do a, pro a story about our thing. She just asked. And the one thing that I really want to convey to you with this learn something aspect is you have to just ask. Um, it is not always easy, especially if you're not a naturally outgoing person. It takes some guts. That's the experience part of this type of experiential writing. Um, you just have to call up random strangers and say, hey, I'm writing a piece on such and such. I would really like it if you could help me to do this. Would you be able to do that? Sometimes you have to be really persistent. Um, I started out my career as a journalist, and you'd have to call people back five and six times before they would actually get back to you and do what you wanted to do. And again, I know for some people, 
I, I'm bossy, right? Some people are not bossy, and that's not in your nature to um, be aggressive about things like that. But you do have to be. That's one of the skills you have to learn to do this type of writing. But I tell you, it is a skill that has served me well in general throughout my life, um, and it's a good skill to learn. So setting up these types of um, <coughs> experiences or setting up an interview to talk to someone else about um, about their process or their whatever they're doing, right, um, is important. Um, you will find, once you get a, pluck up the courage to do this, that many people are, in fact, thrilled to talk to you about what they do, and some people you will not be able to get to stop talking, even when you wish they would. <laughs> She's nodding her head back there. Um, sometimes those people are great. Sometimes those people are your best asset. Um, because you can call them again and again and again, and they will give you more and more and more information. Um, some people are more reticent, but that's okay. Um, all, you, all you can do is ask, right? You ask. If it doesn't go well, then you're going to have to ask someone else, but it's not the end of the world. Um, <clears throat> if, again, this doesn't have to be a huge project. You don't have to interview eight different people. Um, so if you look at your handout for this, all I'm asking you to do for this type of experiential writing is to devote one hour to interviewing strangers or else to set up one interview with someone in your community. I do this exercise almost every year with my students at the uh, Iowa Young Writers Studio. They're all high school students. I send them out on the pedestrian mall down by Capanna where you guys all get your coffee. And I say, you need to go up to these strangers and you need to say to them, tell me an interesting story from your life. And they, oh, no, we can't do that. Oh. And then they do it. And they come back an hour later super excited and with these amazing stories. Like, you would be shocked what a stranger will just tell you on the street if you ask. Um, so we had one guy tell a story about he was in World War II. They had just won some battle. And he and his friends went back to somebody's apartment. And um, they were so excited, they got so drunk that they took a hatchet and chopped a hole in the floor and made a fire pit and spent the night like dancing around this fire pit in drunken happiness, okay? That was one that I thought was fantastic. Um, I, on the other end of the spectrum, they met a woman with her teenage daughter, and they said, um, one of the other questions I gave them was, what was one thing you would change about your life? And she looked at her daughter and she said, I should have never married your father. <laughs> um, you would not think that people would be so forthcoming with things, but in fact, I guess people are just burning to tell things and they're waiting for that person to come up to them and say, hey, what do you want to talk about? Um, so I do, in this more than anything else, I encourage everyone in this room, if you have never had to interview a stranger, that you set this as your goal for, let's say, this month, okay? Do this at some point because it is a great skill to have in your writer's toolbox. Um, and just the same way that you don't want to learn to drive when you have a pregnant woman in the passenger seat saying, oh my gosh, we have to get to the hospital. You don't want to learn to do an interview when it's some really important, you know, hard-to-reach person who's essential to your project. You want to practice before it comes to the crucial situation. And this is a great way to do it. It's a great way to get over your nerves because the worst thing that happens is this person says, no, I'm sorry, I don't have time. Why, you're weird, why are you asking me this? And they leave and you never see them again because most of you aren't even from Iowa City, okay? It's a low stakes kind of engagement um, that I encourage you all to do. <coughs> okay. Um, and then uh, I did put, if you set up an interview, I put just a few pointers. Um, I am a big fan of digital recorders now are really, really small. Also, a lot of you have them on your cell phones. But if you don't, they're about, you can get a, a really pretty good one for about $40. Um, they're small enough to hang around your neck. You don't have to worry about scribbling down every word this person said. Your quotes are going to be accurate. You still need a notepad to um, do observations about what's going on in the surroundings, what does this person look like, things that aren't verbal. But the digital recorder is going to be your best friend if you start doing interviews. Okay. Um, aside from that, 
prepare some questions ahead of time, do some background research so you have some idea what questions to ask. If you're interviewing the head of the steel company and you know nothing about steel, it's kind of hard to know what to ask, right? Um, <clears throat> this one is really important. Spend the first few minutes of the interview. This is not so much for your impromptu on the street interviews, but if it's a formal interview, spend some, some minutes on small talk. Don't, it's, if you're, especially if you're nervous, it's easy to get in there and think, I have to get down to business. I start asking the tough questions. Um, but that is exactly what you don't want to do because you will freak that person out. They'll be nervous and scared, and they won't want to give you information. Um, so spend that few minutes just to kind of put everyone at ease and start with the easy questions and kind of work your way up. Okay. Um, last thing is just if you're going to, if you don't have a recorder and you want to quote something, make sure that you have it down correctly. Really take careful notes on, on things like that because then you get into legal issues that I don't have time to discuss at this point. All right, <clears throat> last form of experiential writing. Um, William Faulkner has this great, great quote that I discovered, I don't know, six or seven years ago, and now I think of it repeatedly when I teach. He says, a writer needs three things. You need uh, imagination, observation, and experience. And sometimes, if you have a lot of one of those things, it can make up for the lack of one of the others. So if you have a really amazing imagination, maybe it doesn't matter that you don't have much experience or that you're not very observant. Um, but ideally, a writer has all three, right? So the final type of experiential writing I'm going to talk about is sort of the quietest type. It's closer to that observation than it is to experience. Um, and that is just that you go out into the world and you very carefully and thoroughly um, observe the, uh, the world around you in some way. Okay. Uh, recently, I feel like this has gone off in some boom of popularity, um, this, the Buddhist idea of mindfulness. If you see all these mindfulness practices, retreats, whatever going on these days, it's similar to that. It's this idea that we, um, every day, you know, most of us are in the same environments every day. We're in our house, we're in our workplace, we are going between these places. Um, and you walk through these places without ever actually fully looking at them, right? Um, which in some ways is necessary. If you took in every detail about every environment you entered, you would just be constantly overstimulated. And so your brain is designed to filter a lot of that out. Nothing wrong with that. But as a writer, um, you're often trying to recreate those places for your audience, right? And so you need to have that really keen and intense observation to be able to do that. Um, so uh, this is just a matter of paying really close attention. And the exercise I gave you is just to go to a place you're not familiar with, spend an hour there, do not interact with other people, um, write down everything you see, but also write down what goes on in your own head. There's going to come a point where you get really bored and you think, oh, did she say an hour? She didn't really mean an hour. I think I'm done with this. I think I've seen everything there is to see here. Um, and you have to kind of ride that out, right? Um, and it's interesting to sort of see where your mind goes when you're in those situations. Um, but you, you basically have your, your top layer of detail that you see right away, and then you have your boredom, and then you get down to the layer of detail that you didn't notice the first time around, that you only notice when your mind is grasping for things to look at. But I think that can be really interesting. Um, <clears throat> if anyone's read David Foster Wallace's Ticket to the Fair, uh, he goes to the Illinois State Fair and he writes about it. And it's just copious detail. I mean, every hoof on every cow and how the manure smells and um, you know, what the feathers of the chickens look like and every little thing, right, is in there. Um, but that's part of what makes his writing interesting. And it's part of what um, really recreates that experience of being at the fair. <clears throat> David Foster Wallace. He was one of the, he's dead now, but he was one of the people who was deemed unworthy of the Pulitzer Prize this year. So if you forget, you can come up that way. Along with everyone else. Um, okay, so uh, another way I think is good to practice this is I, um, I do a thing sometimes where I keep what's called a detailed journal, where I just, each day, 
when I'm going to go to bed, I had never kept a journal because I hate looking back at the journals. And when I read about what I wrote about my own life, it seems so self-involved and I just kind of cringe and I don't want to read it, right? Um, <clears throat> detailed journal is you sit down at the end of every day and you write down just one, or if you have more than one, it's fine, but at least one noteworthy detail from your day, something that was beautiful or sad or interesting to you. Um, so I, yesterday, I had just got here, right, I was unpacking all my things. I unpacked all my shoes and I realized they all have a hole worn through exa the exact same place in the heel. And I thought, well, that's something about how I walk, right? I lean back on my heels. I never knew that. I only know it because I had to look at all my shoes on the same day. Um, go figure. Um, it can be something like that. It could be something interesting that somebody said on the street. But it's a good way to kind of look back over your day and pick out that one moment that's interesting. And actually, what's, what's really cool about these detailed journals is you go back and look at them, and they will, in fact, tell you um, what was going on in your life. So I look back at times when I was really unhappy, and I wrote about my cat, like, every single day, you know? And I said, oh, I turned into a crazy cat lady because I was having a bad year. Um, that, Details do tell you a lot. I'm actually, I do a class this weekend that's all on details because I'm a big, firm believer in that, details. Um, I said at the beginning we would come back to Thoreau. Um, Walden, all those, all those transcendentalists, Emerson, all those people, they were so much about really observing the, the natural world and the world around them um, and turning that into beautiful writing. Um, and so it's not, uh, it's not, you know, it's not the do something experience where you're jumping out of a plane or you're eating five gallons of chocolate or whatever crazy thing you're trying to do. It's a much quieter form of experience, but it does really add richness to your writing. Um, okay, so uh, just in a sort of overview to go back over what I've said, um, one of the really important things I think. Um, when you're doing this is to set deadlines for yourself. As with any type of writing, it's easy to say, um, oh yeah, yeah, I, I, that sounds cool, I'll do that. Um, it will never happen. You really do. If you, you want to do it with a friend, especially with these experience things, um, if you don't want to go up to people alone on the street and try to interview them, take a friend with you. Um, if you, um, you know, one of the things I put on the do something list was like go to some weird event in your county or in a nearby small town. Um, you know, say to your friend, oh, we're going to go to the blueberry pie eating festival together, right? Um, set those kind of deadlines for yourself. Take careful notes. You think you're going to remember it, but even if you're really young, you don't remember it all. Um, and the, you'll be really happy to have those notes, especially because you don't always know how you're going to use this experience in your writing. Sometimes you won't use it till years later. You'll do something and you'll think, eh, I don't know, that wasn't so, I don't really need to write about that. Um, and then at some point it'll come back to you and you'll think, oh, but now I really see more about what I got out of that experience. I do want to write about it. Too bad I don't remember what happened, right? That's when your notes come in really handy. Um, <clears throat> Beyond that, uh, all I can say is I think just living, it just generally leads you to live a richer and more interesting life. Even if it's you only get to do this once a month or once every two months where you go out and try something completely new, um, I think it, it gets your brain working in a different way uh, and it m literally makes your writing part of your life. It intertwines your writing in your life. And that's the best thing you can do to keep yourself writing. Because when we isolate our writing and we make it something that is just this activity that has to happen at a specified time and place and it never enters into our life in any other way, that's um, one of the big obstacles to continuing to write. And I think this can also help you to get around that. So I'm going to stop there. If anyone has questions, I am happy to answer them. Yes? Because um, I recall you're teaching a workshop on science fiction and fantasy. I am. So you probably have some interesting observations on how real-world experiences are related to Yes, I do. I mean, we actually were talking in class yesterday. We're doing an exercise where um, 
people interview each other and then they take those real life facts about each other and they incorporate them into a science fiction or a fantasy character. Um, I think one of the biggest problems with a lot of people say, oh, science fiction and fantasy. Oh, really? Oh. Um, I think the reason for that is that a lot of that type of writing lacks the detail that exists in real life. It doesn't make no, it's so concerned with the science of the science fiction, or it's so concerned with the fantasy element, that it doesn't bring in those um, nuances that make life real. And so when you can bring that in, I think that's when you get really good science fiction and fantasy. Um, and so I do think that this type of thing is, is just as important, even for writing like that. Even though, obviously, then you need to bring in a healthy dose of imagination to make it work, I do think it works for that as well. Yeah. Thank you. Yes? Right. Um, so how do you just avoid using, repeat the question. So she said, um, I was talking about the importance of detail, but how do you sort of avoid using too much detail? How do you avoid getting lost in the detail? Um, I think, I, this is one thing where I think that detail journal really helps. If you say to yourself, I'm just going to pick one thing each day, it kind of helps you to hone that sense. But in, in more general terms, um, Certainly, you can have too much detail, right? Um, and then your piece just gets kind of bogged down and tedious and, yeah. Um, you want to ask yourself, is this detail unique in some way, right? Is it a detail that uh, I haven't read somewhere else? So if you're describing your kitchen, you don't need to tell me that there's a refrigerator and a microwave and a stove because those are things that I assume are in a kitchen, right? If um, <clears throat> there's a chewed up tennis ball sitting in the dog's water bowl, that tells me something, right? That tells me that, number one, that there's a dog, the dog's allowed in the kitchen, and whoever owns this kitchen doesn't care that there's a slobbery tennis ball sitting there, right? If there's a um, brownie batter handprint a foot up the front of the refrigerator, that tells me that maybe there are small children in there or something, right? Um, and again, it tells me that this is not a neatnik who's really worried about the cleanliness of their kitchen. Um, you want to look for those details that, that tell a larger story, I guess is how I would put it. Um, and I have sort of, a, I guess I would say, a high tolerance for detail. I really enjoy detail. But if you look at someone like Hemingway, it's, very, it's all very pared down, right? Um, but he still has detail in there. They're just much more sparsely used. Um, so there's a vast level of variation depending what writer you're reading, but I do think that's the, the key thing is eliminating those details that don't really tell me any more than just a basic piece of fact that I could probably have guessed myself. Yeah. If, if I were interested in blogging, mm -hmm. I have the technical skill to set up a Facebook page, that's about as far as. So you have suggestions on how to start a blog that might be read by somebody Mm -hmm. um, so there's there are a lot of programs out there, Blogspot and whatever, that make it technically very easy to set up a blog. Um, I don't blog myself, but this is what my blogging friends tell me, okay, is that the way to get traffic on your blog is to read other people's blogs and post on their blogs with a link back to your own blog. Other people who are writing about similar things, because then what happens is their readers read the comments, they see your comment, and they follow you back to your blog. Um, it is really difficult because there's so many blogs out there, it's hard to develop a following. And there are a lot of blogs that are only read by people's, you know, close friends and family. Um, so the other thing I would say is you have to think about what, if I'm just a stranger who stumbles onto this blog, what makes it interesting to me? What larger, and this is creative nonfiction in general, like what larger observations do you have that make this something of interest to the rest of the world? Because if you're just writing about, um, you know, people talk very derisively about like mommy blogs, right? Where it's mothers writing about their children. And everybody loves their children, but they're not as interesting to the rest of the world as they are to you. Um, so what, what can you say that makes, that makes it interesting to everyone else? And the mommy blogs that are successful are the ones that have 
like a great sarcastic sense of humor. And so even if you have no kids and you don't care about kids, you can read it and just laugh, you know. Um, or they talk about larger societal issues of um, child rearing, right? And then um, you have a reason to be interested, even if you don't care about this particular child. So whatever your topic is, that's the same thing that you have to do is find that um, more universal element to it. Someone in the back there. Yes? Um, you talk a little bit about um, the detail of telling how to make something. I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. I watched a woman make a fishnet once. She and I had no common language, and therefore all I could learn about how you made that fishnet was watching it. Uh -huh. And then I bought a fishnet because the only way you can pay someone for their time yeah. in that kind of society is actually purchase their, their craft. I broke down what I thought I'd seen, and my husband, who was a very good proofreader, said to me, you don't know what she did, do you? <laughs> and I went back and looked at the stitches, and I'm still not sure what she did. So how do you get it right? Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean, this is, especially when you're in a situation like that where you can't say, oh, could you do that again? Could you make another fishnet and that? I'll take another look. Um, this is, again, I think a, a thing that applies across the board in creative nonfiction, that sometimes we just have to do our best. So then you insert some sort of phrase into your description that says, um, I had never seen this done before, and... You know, her fingers were moving quickly, but as far as I can tell, this is what she did. And then you describe it, right? And then you've, you've um, provided sort of a literary disclaimer that says, I'm not an expert on making fishnets, but this is what I can tell you, right? Which is, which is what you can tell us is more than probably anyone else in this room can tell us about how to make a fishnet, because I wouldn't have the first clue, right? I wouldn't know anything. So even if you don't get it exactly right, you're at least conveying your experience of what it was, right? Um, other than that, the best you can do is take really good notes. If it's a visual thing like that and you happen to have a video camera ha handy, then great, you know. This was before video So, you know, so I, this is such an interesting question. We run into it all the time at Creative Nonfiction. Some things just are not going to be accurate. What can I say? And there's this big argument. John Degata, who teaches here at University of Iowa, um, put a book out this year called Lifespan of a Fact. Um, they garnered a lot of controversy, and it was all about, you know, how accurate can you be in your facts. Um, you just can't always be 100% accurate. You can't. And I think it actually takes some of the magic out of the writing if you hold yourself to a standard of 100% accuracy. Do I think that you should cavalierly toss aside the facts and just go with whatever sounds good? No, I don't. But I think if you've done your best to really try to give an honest representation of what you've seen, then that's all that a reader can ask. Yeah. Anything else? All right. Thank you very much. Have a great day.